Welcome back to Mark's Madness, now part of Chunkaluta. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I am here too, surprisingly yeah. for once. No press <laughs> today, though. Uh, yeah, no press. So, but we 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 do this a lot, where we kind of you know bounce with two people when we have a three person group. Just how you get it worked out. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, the pleasures of having multiple hosts. <laughs> anyway, well, and a guest host, I should say. Yeah. Um, but this is but, Mark's been. Oh, I was going to. Sorry. I was oh, I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Mark Venice. Yay. Yeah. I took some of those reins when it was me and Prez, and now I'm confused and when to do it. Um, but anyway, matter, right? <laughs> this is Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. That's true. As long as we're not stomping on each other. Um, my name is David. I'm Shumani, too. We're. Uh, we're we're the regular hosts. Yes, I can't tell because it's been confusing. <laughs> I think <laughs> I was here for like one episode, and then four episodes later came back. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we are we are jumping into the second uh, Stuart Hall reader on Antonio Gramsci. But before we do that, as we tend to do, we're going to look into current events. And today, Shungmani Two is really going to take a lot of the current event reins. Um, Glad to be back. So first thing. <laughs> that's probably pretty relevant is uh, wildfires in Quebec have pretty much like suffocated New York and other places in the Northeast uh, to the point that, you know, it looks like somebody pissed in your eyes when you go outside, you know, it's yellow. Like people are going to get injured if they don't have anywhere to go inside. I mean, the amount of people who have N95 masks is probably very little, you know, um, even here I have uh, like warnings for the air quality and you know, I'm the opposite way from New York is from Quebec. So it's just kind of wild how much smoke is being thrown off of these. And a lot of it has to do with sort of the plantation forestry um, that the Canadian logging industry does where, you know, you throw up pines that are super dry they never get the water needed because they're usually not even indigenous to the fucking area. And then they go up in flames. It's it's a bonfire waiting to go. Yeah. You know? I mean, like literally the, the way we do logging to like the standard, like the best possible standard designs the forests in a way to just light. And it's so dumb because, <laughs> you know, there's indigenous ways of management that, you know, we could be doing, and then we could also switch out uh, the need for lumber if we utilized other materials. It's just, there's so many things that are wrong with the way that we use trees, you know. Mm -hmm. It's just, there's so many better things we could be doing that's better for the environment, like hempcrete and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. Uh, So that's pretty terrifying. And of course, you know, the amount of carbon emissions. The absolute. Yeah. It's yeah. getting colder here. So I'm kind of glad because I've had a heat wave. But yeah. like, I haven't had rain yet this Oof. summer. So I'm like, yeah. I don't think we've had rain. And we had a little drizzle this morning. And that was probably oh, the first thing in two lucky weeks. You. Wow. Yeah. I wish. <laughs> we had snow at the beginning of this month. And then. Well, last month, not this month. I guess it's June now. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Could you imagine getting snow now? I think Jeez. they got snow in Pakistan. 
Really? Uh, yeah, I don't know how close it was to the mountains though, because I'm uh, kind of like geographically illiterate. Mm-hmm. So. But that's you know that's another thing climate change does though is it breaks all the I mean we remember in the winter where our only cold spot in the winter because it never really frosted was just some super death cold blast that lasted for like a week and and killed oh, a lot of people yeah yeah that freaking that's when mm-hmm. I went out to South Dakota mm-hmm. and and so you know that's a good reminder that like all these jet streams and and wind patterns are breaking because of climate change mm-hmm. and it's altering weather in total not just the predictable ways where like all the storms will be worse and coastline will disappear but in totally unpredictable ways well it's called the the bubble um theory and so like the idea is that the bubble was going to keep growing and growing and so like the conditions of the area were going to get worse and worse and worse until it popped and then it's unpredictable with how these things are because once the ecosystems have destabilized it's extremely hard to get them to restabilize in a way that's normal ever again and uh so, like, we're looking at a fundamentally reshaping of the environment in order to fucking stabilize things. Or, you know, uh, the rivers will dry out and locusts will eat our flesh. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's going to be some fucking biblical shit, and it's going to be terrifying. And you're going to yeah. have a bunch of right-wing zealots going, the end is nigh, and then, like, start murdering people. It's going to be great. Yeah, they'll 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 say that this is the the apocalypse that the oppressed masses deserve for daring to want riots or some shit. Start some new crusade. Yeah, it 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 won't bring some realization. It'll they'll just double down very very violently. But yeah, so uh, good luck everyone. Um, But that leads us to our next thing, which is water uh, rights and how to best protect the water from drying out and all of us dying and yeah fucking the answer is land back (laughs) but um more specifically water back um which is a new phrase um or rather new addition to the land back movement that kind of centers um water as um i guess the nexus of how we should be thinking about land back and stuff like that. And Mm -hmm. to me, this makes a lot of sense because like our treaties are defined by uh, the tide of uh, rivers along our territory. And so uh, rather than being, you know, uh, the side of the river closest to us, it's based on the furthest shore and wherever the water is. So it's technically even a moving border, but uh, you know, like, of course they don't, recognize that they poison the water they Mm -hmm. freaking do all kinds of stuff with the water uh and don't uh, respect the agreements that we're supposed to have much like with the land you know um there's a a red crow westerman song called they didn't listen uh that i recommend people go check out and that's like in the 70s or something like that when it's written that's you know way before al gore you know (laughs) So many idiots are like, oh, we, uh, how could we have, they've been talking about this for decades. And it's like, yeah, uh-huh, we have, haven't we? Mm-hmm. Ec- ecological disaster was seen a long time ago. Yeah. It's almost like the Dust Bowl happened or something. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, I mean, like California just, there's too many people there. Like people need to move. 
to be fair, fair, like people just need to move. Uh, like there shouldn't be 20 million people in the middle of the desert. I'm just saying, <laughs> yeah, maybe not a good idea for water management. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and then like, uh, what's more fucked up is that indigenous nations recognize people need fucking water and are sharing, even though they, you know, are supposed to have exclusive access to the water and in some cases are being forced to. So, uh, NARF is, uh, hosts, uh, biannual, um, symposium um, on water rights and uh, this year it's going to be on August 8th to 9th and hosted virtually so you can uh, reach out to Julia Grote at JG well jgrote at wswc.utah.gov um, to register for this symposium like legalistic electoral struggle for water rights and um, how they can be used as a point of um, unity, you know, uh, that's materialistically motivated much in the way Bolivia was able to have their um, reforms and uh, major uh, changes after the water wars um, because, they banded together and kicked out the Suez Canal Group, you know, who held a monopoly over their water supply. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's, I mean, that's what we need to be doing. Uh, you know, uh, the way utilities and stuff are set up is usually, um, you know, some company has a exclusive monopoly over the water um, system and then, they, you know, rent it out or whatever to cities and fucking like in Detroit, that was one of the driving factors um, to Flint, the Flint water crisis, actually. Um, It was Detroit uh, monopolistically controlling all the water and, you know, trying to recover from its bankruptcy that basically sent Flint almost into bankruptcy. Then Snyder declares a state of emergency, uh, which, uh, you don't need congressional oversight for decisions or any democratic oversight during a state of emergency. Uh, and so Rick Snyder gets to appoint an accountant who just looks at the numbers and says, we can save money if we switch to a local water source, which of course you could. The thing is, is that two years prior to this, the previous governor had already instituted a project to build a uh, pipeline to the Huron Lake. And so it was already, it was a seven year project uh, so there was only five years left on the project. That just means you have to, A, float some money over to them instead of car companies that killed that river, mm-hmm. you know. Um, or B, you know, you got to find a clean source of water or, you know, actually treat the water to a high enough standard that it's drinkable. Um, and the people, when they heard that the decision was being made, they thought it was a joke because... You know, there's a dead body found in there every week. (laughs) I wish, I mean, that's a little bit of an over-exaggeration, but statistically speaking, yeah, it it works out that way. Uh, It's pretty fucked up. So, like, uh, it's like uh, saying that you'd drink out of the Rouge River in fucking Detroit. Just, no. No. Yeah. Uh, And, of course, you know, these are 
majority black communities. That's why they don't care. The underfunding of infrastructure came with white flight. Um, and now these places are basically maintained as uh, a neo-reservation system, almost. I mean, it's, it's very interesting um, just to see like the over-policing and stuff. Detroit's something like 85% black, yet like uh, y- you see these private military contractors that come in that are like black rock employees. Because you got to think like Eric Pierce, Prince is from Michigan. His yeah. sister is Betsy DeVos. Betsy DeVos, yeah. Yeah, and fucking, you know, they do all kinds of fucked up shit. But uh, Citibank Group um, basically runs downtown Detroit um, through their private military contractors now that like are private security for like the casinos and stuff. And uh, like the casinos are definitely very much uh, ran by the mob still, but you can see that w- the mob is condoned, you know, like it's totally yeah. fine to be a white collar criminal. <laughs> Because, like, a lot of the mobster stuff now is, like, cryptocurrency scams and, like, sure. fucking Tor browser shit. You know? <laughs> Who knows? But, like, a lot of it's just nerd shit now. And it's, like, whatever. Who cares? And so, of course, they're going to team up with the bankers like they've always have. The fucking capitalists and the mob are one and the same. The mob's basically a clandestine branch of the CIA, you know, and the CIA is a clandestine branch of the banks. So, you know, <laughs> it's just sort of how it works out. And uh, A plus, plus B squared equals C squared. Yeah. I mean, it's how they bring in money to do what they want. And I don't know, you know where the right angle is in that Pythagorean theorem, but it makes You, of course, sense. the mob is like the progenitor of like crack in Detroit. Crack's still very popular in Detroit. Um, and so, like, freaking. Well, and Coke, but like, you know, they're fucking pumping out both into the black community and then in the club selling cocaine to the white kids. And so there's mm-hmm. just like a huge fucking, I don't know, people, I, I once heard it compared to the 70s, like as a joke, because we were reading a Ben Shapiro joke, a book for fun. Uh, and so like he had this character Leroy or something like that. That was just the most stereotypic black character you could have oh, ever Oh, Jesus. Right. Um, but like when he brought up crack and cocaine and stuff and like LSDs, like what is this, the sixties, seventies? And uh <laughs> I was like, no, actually that's that's pretty true about Detroit. Like that's still very popular. Like <laughs> I I don't know what it is about Detroit, but they do not like pills and stuff like that. Like it hmm. never caught on, I guess. I, I think it, a lot of it's probably due to poverty preventing access to healthcare. But <laughs> that's just a guess. Uh <laughs> But anyway, uh, so I think that's all there is for uh, current events. Yeah, I don't uh, have anything. And so. a little little history of uh, Detroit. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> all right, well, jumping into the reading, we're on um, slide 18. So the second development is the difference Gramsci comes to articulate between a class which dominates and a class which leads. Domination and coercion can maintain the ascendancy of a particular class over society, but its reach is limited. It has to rely consistently on coercive means rather than winning consent. For that reason, it is not capable of enlisting the, enlisting the positive participation of different parts of society in a historic project to transform or renovate society. Leadership, on the other hand, has its coercive aspects too. 
but it is led by the winning of consent, the taking into account of subordinate interests, the attempting to make itself popular. For Gramsci, there is no pure case of coercion or consent, the only different combinations of the two dimensions. Hegemony is not exercised in the economic and administrative fields alone, but encompasses the critical domains of cultural, moral, ethical, and intellectual leadership. It is only under those conditions that some long-term historic project, for example, to modernize society, to raise a whole level of performance of society and transform the basic of national, basis of national politics, can be effectively put on the historical agenda. It can be seen from this that the concept of hegemony is expanded in Gramsci um, by making strategic use of a number of distinctions. For example, those in between domination and leadership, coercion and consent, and economic and corporate and moral and intellectual. And this makes sense, like where it's a sliding scale and everything, because you do see stuff all the time. You know, for example, police are coercion, but then the public has been manipulated where they think petty theft is a worse crime than killing someone over petty theft. Right. Like, you know, you always get the right wing. If anybody breaks into my house, I'm going to fucking shoot them. And it's like, right. Or you had to tell them to drop the shit and get out, dude. You don't need to fucking kill people, dude. Yeah. Um, Tell them to fuck off, you know? (laughs) Well, look at all the, also all the, like, you know, anti-looter quote unquote energy or the way people can, you know, scaremonger about homeless people where they can be further marginalized and pushed out to their death of fear that they might steal something. Oh, I mean, I've heard they're going to stab our kids and I'm like, yeah, just, but no, all, all that buy-in, all that buy-in is consent. You've got people on board with hating homeless people that do nothing uh, against them in favor of the bosses and capitalists who exploit them. Well, I mean, frankly, that boss's kid who goes to school with your kid is probably more likely to shoot up the school mm-hmm. than a homeless person is to ever stab your fucking kid. Yes, but until they shoot up the school, there's a chance your kid is friends with the boss's kid and not with the homeless kid. And so, you know, that plus a bunch of propaganda gets you in a societal buy-in against the oppressed masses, which is, you know, obviously a crock of horse shit, but it's unfortunately how things tend to work right now. And, and we've got to break those um, cultural, you know, identifiers with the ruling class that, that are so dominant. Underpinning this explanation is another distinction based on one. We're continuing the reading. We're continuing the reading. Sorry. Underpinning this expansion is another distinction based on one of Gramsci's fundamental historical theses. This is the distinction between state and civil society. In his essay titled State and Civil Society, Gramsci elaborated this distinction in several ways. First, he drew a distinction between two types of struggle, the war of maneuver where everything is condensed into one front and one moment of struggle, and there is a single strategic breach in the enemy's defenses. All I'm saying is, Prez has talked about this over and over again, Mm -hmm. and it's a shut up and let the book do its reading now for like the last five episodes coming to fruition now while Prez... (laughs) I'm very angry about it. The the ultimate Mark's Bendis tradition. (laughs) Well, I'm like... I've got shut up and let the book read it so many times and Prez is over here like, oh, I'm going to spoil this. Entire I, know, I know. Uh, 
Edwizans, which once made, enables the new forces to rush in and obtain a definitive strategic victory. Second, so that was the War of Maneuver. Second, the War of Position, which has to be conducted in a protracted way across many different and varying fronts of struggle, where there is rarely a single breakthrough which wins the war once and for all in a flash, as Gramsci puts it. Um, and so, you know, this is... is <laughs> It's kind of funny because we were talking about the the small utility of, you know, electoral gains as far as like the, the you know, certain local issues and the water protection rights you were talking about. Um, and, and that kind of fight is this here. You know, you don't get some big win where you elect Biden president and all the fascism stops. Oh. If Cornell West runs, then we're going to push. <laughs> the, we're going to push the left f- further further in the society and say, no, we're not, we're going to get co-opted and then defused. Mm -hmm. But that is, that is one of many, many different, you know, wars of, of position. And, you know, we can also do it on a smaller scale. Like how many times do we, you know, break people out of propaganda lies and have to push back against narratives against, you know, homeless people, indigenous people, black people, official foreign enemies, things like that. Well, right. I mean, just from like, the internet perspective right um but like in real life like even smaller things like fucking um i have a buddy who's really into white water rafting right yeah and so he's gotten the city to release water in the spring at a convenient time that also allows the migration of a fish down that river Mm -hmm. again nice um so utilizing white people interests (laughs) i mean it's a a niche interest there's like maybe sure Two dozen to like three dozen, you know, white water rafters who want that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it was able to leverage enough support for fucking advancing fishermen's interests as well as just the interest of fish. Mm -hmm. You know, um, there's that German ideology quote we said in the Red Deal last season where it's like the essence of a freshwater fish is the river. Uh, and that essence is bent to the will of capital and thus killed, you know, like yeah. that shouldn't happen yeah, because it's, it's going to kill life because the essence of water is life, mm-hmm. <laughs> which mm-hmm. is like what we get at. And that's why we have that water symposium I told you about again, August 8th through 9th. Reminder to register. <laughs> Learn more about water rights and how important they are to the struggle for land back. Yeah. Um, and how you can get white farmers and shit on our side by being like, hey, wouldn't it be great if like your shit wasn't getting poisoned? Mm-hmm. That'd be cool. <laughs> Uh, another example based on what the reading is showing war of position. We are really going off with press not here to correct us. But, you know, another thing is like organizing. Um, we, we talk a lot about, you know, when you organize, you're, you're serving the community, right. And you're serving the people and you're building that up. And so there's, this not this big flash moment of ta-da, you know, suddenly we're, we're the owners of the community. You know, it's a big protracted, revolution but you're you're building trust you're helping people out you're helping people survive you're building right. power you're building up the base of systems of the future well, so, so in my neighborhood we have revolution we have a little collective forming actually like mm-hmm. on the block i think there's four neighbors and that's because one died oh no <laughs> and then another one just moved in so uh 
like we we have pretty much everybody on board with the plans to feed each other and shit and like uh it just it's really cool to see happen because it's very like low-key and not in your face communist but it's Mm -hmm. very much still like hey yeah it's communist (laughs) (laughs) but uh yeah i mean like there's redneck trumpers involved there's there's yeah there's this new guy who like did cut down his cherry tree and we haven't talked to yet. And it's like mm. the guy who used to live there would let everybody come pick cherries and like mm. it produced hundreds of pounds of cherries. Oh Jesus. Yeah. And they just chopped it right down. Mm. So we're right. going to be like, Hey, uh, <laughs> what you doing? Are you an asshole? <laughs> Why would you do that? Dude. Yeah. But yeah, so like uh, you know, there's like a lot of real life examples of these things that can be done, mm-hmm. and it's very easy. Like in an apartment complex, putting together a tenants union, you know, like that's very small, but it changes things massively for the movement. Yes, I mean it's such a real life application. Yes, so we've nailed down um, what this we should about. get one more example. <laughs> <laughs> no, so we've nailed down what in a flash. Um, you know, versus something gradual and more position. Bringing chili to your neighbor unannounced. Yeah. <laughs> God. Um, back that discourse. But let's let's figure out from a shut up and let the book read perspective how well we nailed the war of position itself rather than the gradual versus in a flash concept. Uh, what really counts in a war of position is not the enemy's forward trenches to continue the military metaphor, but the whole organizational and industrial system of the territory, which lies to the rear of the army in the field. That is the whole structure of society, including the structures of institutions of civil society. Gramsci regarded 1917 as perhaps the last example of a successful war of maneuver strategy. It marked a decisive turning point in the history of art and science of politics. And he's talking about the Bolshevik revolution. Yeah, yeah, he's talking about the Bolshevik revolution and and it's surging and changing culture. And so, I mean, I guess we're on track talking about culture. So, yay. Good us. Dude. We can read theory. We know how. It's almost Ooh. like we've been doing it for a while. <laughs> <laughs> We're not uh, totally dude. clueless here. Oh, yeah. by the way, uh, should we announce that we are going to try to get a Palancis season Ooh. together? That would be good. Yeah. So if yeah. you have some recommendations. <laughs> I'm sure Prez will have some recommendations too. No, no, I know, I know. I'm just saying what people <laughs> want to hear sure. from Palancis. Sure. Uh, This was linked to a second distinction between East and West. These stand for Gramsci as metaphors for the distinction between Eastern and Western Europe and between the model of the Russian Revolution and the forms of political struggle appropriate to the much more difficult terrain of the industrialized liberal democracies of the West. Here, Gramsci addresses the critical use so long so long evaded by many Marxist scholars of the failure of political conditions in the West to match up or correspond with those which made 1917 in Russia possible. Hey, he's talking about not fetishizing the uh, Bolshevik revolution, even if you still look to it for examples and and understanding how good Um, a central issue, since despite these radical differences and the consequent failure of proletarian revolutions of the classic type in the West, Marxists have continued to be obsessed by the winter palace model of revolution and politics. Gramsci is therefore drawing a critical analytic distinction between pre-revolutionary Russia, 
with its long-delayed modernization, its swollen state apparatus and bureaucracy, and its relatively undeveloped civil society and low level of capital's development. And on the other hand, the West, with its mass democratic forms, its complex civil society, the consolidation of consent of the masses through political democracy into a more consensual basis for the state. The whole idea of buying in that, that we're so free. and Yeah, so I, it, that's a good distinction to have. Um, well, and I think we can see a lot of this um, today kind of like a, a lot of like the MAGA communists, I think, attach mm-hmm. themselves to MAGA because they stormed the Winter Palace, so to say, with the Capitol. <laughs> God. You know, like it seems like that's where a lot of the lionization comes from. Um, yeah. and I there, don't know. There is, I mean, sometimes surface level fetishization. You see like that. You see that with right-wing Russian nationalists, right? Like they well, hated the difference. Am I right? Yeah, right. They, they hated the, the Soviet Union. They hate the communism, but all the Soviet victories, especially like over the Nazis and stuff, that's, that's the great Russian victories. And so they'll glorify specifically Stalin. But Stalin is the red czar. Yeah. Like that's what it is as a czar. Like, you know, that's what they want. Um, so yeah, it's just reactionary bullshit. That's very, very surface level. And and to be fair, you know, liberals operate on, on surface level politics too. It's kind of ingrained in the Western culture, right? I mean, we just talked about the fetishization of democracy and how to get public consent and buy in, you know, we're so free versus the backwards, you know, East, whereas, as, as, you know, the Russian revolution happened in a more blunt traditional nationalistic sense, like we're the, the great mother Russia of the czar. Right. And, and toppling that made more sense. Whereas like, you know, when you topple a, a Western nation, you're toppling democracy, you're toppling that shining beacon on the Hill that delivers freedom to the world and all the, you know, all the overtly white supremacist stuff that is not considered overt white supremacy. It's just run of the mill exceptionalism because we're exceptional. I don't think I've ever told this story, but I, I once used to do a, like, like, a, you know, like I was like a raised by right wing Christian extremists until I was like mm-hmm. 14. And then I moved out. Yeah. I was homeless for a while. Cause it was like, fuck that shit. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I would be like dragged along on missions trips and shit. So one time they go to Milwaukee to this place called city on a hill. And I never realized how fucking racist that was. Oh, oh shit. <laughs> um, where were we? Uh, we were at in, Ru- and this is going yeah, into. Uh, did you yeah. want to read that? Because it's kind of like sounds better for you yeah. to read that, and then I'll pick up. Since the- I since I finished the thing that Colin didn't do it as a grand yeah. book. yeah. Um, in Russia, the state was everything. Civil society was primordial. Oh, this is going to be a serious shut up and let the book read. Civil society was a primordial <laughs> and gelatinous. In the West, there was a proper relation between the state and civil society. And when the state trembled, a sturdy structure of civil society was at once revealed. The state was only an outer ditch behind which there stood a powerful system of fortresses and earthworks, more or less numerous from one state to another. This precisely necessitated an accurate reconnaissance of each individual country. Um, and that interesting. This is like Europa Universalis time. Yeah. All, right. well, all, all of my EU Ford nerds, explain this to us. 
How does mothballing a fort work? No, I'm, I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking <laughs> about, really. Um, somebody's going to get that, and I hope that joke landed. <laughs> um, no, so this is, is interesting because it does really set up something, understanding with the consent aspect and with this of, you know, it, it's always this agreement, right? And colonialism and white supremacy being bought as a gain for it, it, it's like broadening the beneficiaries, the small nucleus of beneficiaries from oppressing other people. And sure it's a gradient, you know, it, it's a gradient level of um, benefit. Right. And for most of that gradient, you're being hurt more than you're being benefiting from that white supremacy. But you can look at those other people that aren't strong enough to topple you and see, they got it worse and be like, I got it good. I'm going to take advantage of whatever opportunity these super powerful people give me. And that's where you get, you know, homesteading and you get people like seizing on, on their whiteness and, and defending the, the South um, against reconstruction and things well, like that. You know, historically speaking, like the true story of the Alamo, uh, the guy who leads it, not, uh, not Crockett, but the other one, mm -hmm. uh, he, uh, he's like, you know, down on his luck, poor guy, you know, and decides to, well, he's a teacher at first. They just don't make a lot of money. Yeah. And then he ends up fucking one of his students, 16, Ugh. gets her pregnant. They get married. And uh, then he's like, oh, well, I guess I'm going to stop teaching <laughs> since I fuck my students. Thank God yeah. he stopped. Right. And then he yeah. becomes a lawyer. Right. And he's in this tiny little town, and so he apprentices under the one lawyer in the town and then opens up a competing law firm. It fails because it turns out there's there's not enough cases yeah. in this small town, and there's already the lawyer that he worked under. So it's yeah. like, go for the guy's teacher, not the guy who learned from him. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he's like, man, I'm in a lot of debt. I ain't got much money. Uh, I'm going to go buy two slaves. So it was quite reasonable for poor people to try to use slavery mm -hmm. to get themselves out of poverty, you know, like, it, it, and then he takes these slaves and ditches his wife and kids to go to Texas and start a militia movement and bada bing, bada boom. He ends up in the Alamo and then like, writes this letter after like repeatedly going, Hey guys, it's kind of rude for me to ask again for more troops. <laughs> and that's the actual story of the Alamo is there's this fucking, I mean, coward in every sense of the word. Uh, everybody told him, just leave, just burn mm. the place, leave. Like, yeah. he's like, no, I'm going to stay here and make my stand. And it's like, you just, you just like murdered all those people, man. You idiot. Jeez. Because like he just refused to take the hint that reinforcements weren't ever coming, Jeez. you know. So like I don't know, like the the whole like story of like a lot of people don't benefit from white supremacy. It's like actually you do incredibly like you, the fact that you have cheap clothes that you can go about. Yeah, it, like that's oh, and I think I think that's where it grips and people do it right. Like you know, it's it's we we should topple this country. It's fucking killing us. It's corrupt. It's completely unacceptable. And then. People get into that and go, okay, but 
you know, what am, what am I going to do for, for work and feeding myself? And they get real scared of losing the small benefits they get for the, the mass block of oppression. And they're not, they're not able to, to jump into that, you know, revolutionary radicalism. Well, right. It's uh it's the bourgeois proletariat as Lenin called them once upon a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's these, proles that have convinced themselves they are temporarily embarrassed billionaires. Mm-hmm. It's not even petite bourgeois. These people are delusional. You know, they don't even have shops half the time. You know, they're like, mm-hmm. I'm going to start a business as soon as I win the lottery. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to make it on a game show and win $20,000 and get my big break. You know, and it's like, it's never going to happen. Maybe it might. You might get like, or, you know, the crypto dream, you know, mm-hmm. but that's like, like the original concept of that is land speculation. It wasn't yeah. the idea, wasn't the idea that you could go out and get a homestead and feed your family or whatever. The dream was you can buy some random chunk of land in California or something, rent it out to the logging or oil companies and get rich by doing nothing. Yeah that's well you you still see that like half the freaking pop-up ads on youtube before you start any videos or or passive income learn how to make money in your spare time type oh, shit. about landlording um yeah. airbnb the mm-hmm. airbnb house bubble. flipping house flipping was a big part of the uh, 2008 market crisis oh i was gonna say there's a very poignant one relevant to my life that i forgot whatever but fucking you know th- there's so many examples of this that it's just like what are you doing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, 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 yeah. Now I remember. Uh, my partner's adopted dad worked for Embridge and like all of his life, and he like owned some land out in uh, well, his family used to own land mm-hmm. out in Chamberlain, South Dakota, which is it was land directly seized by from our, our nation, right? Sure. Yeah, and um. They, uh, you know, built some dams, flooded out this place, and then pushed people onto the reservation further. You know, peeps that were living in this town. And then, like, um, when uh, asked to house any of these people, the mayor of Chamberlain was like, if anybody gives a house to an Indian, they they will not be insured because their house will burn down. Oh, geez. Yeah, like... Okay. <laughs> anyway, not a good place. So uh, his family, I guess, gave the land back to the tribe, but kept the mineral rights. Mm, yep. So that way, if it ever becomes valuable, yeah, they can pull the rug and yep, right underneath the tribe's feet. Mm-hmm. Well, what 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 uh, noble people. <laughs> But I mean, like, hey, that's the closest we get to that, right? <laughs> From a right-wing Republican. That yeah. might be the best we'll ever get. <laughs> yeah. Okay, my turn. So, yes. Gramsci is not merely pinpointing a difference of historical specificity. He is describing a historical transition. It is evident, as state and civil society makes clear, that he sees the war opposition replacing the war maneuver more and more as the conditions of the West become progressively more characteristic of the modern political field in one country after another. 
Here, the West ceases to be purely geographical identification and comes to stand for a new train of politics created by the emerging forms of state and civil society and new, more complex relations between them. In these more advanced societies, where civil... <laughs> advanced, quote-unquote, I need to add, societies where civil society has become a very complex structure resistant to the catastrophic incursions of the immediate economic element, the superstructures of civil society are like the trench systems of modern warfare. A different type of political strategy is appropriate to this novel terrain. The war maneuver is reduced to uh, more of a tactical than a strategic function, and one passes over fr from frontal attack to a war position, which requires unprecedented concentration of hegemony. Uh, yeah, is that how we've been saying it? <laughs> and it's concentrated. Yeah. Okay. It gets confusing because, like, when you say hegemonic, that's the way it goes, and then when you just say it, you're supposed to say hegemony. But okay, uh, hegemony. It's yeah, it's the same word. We can all figure it out. Okay, hegemony and is con concentrated, difficult, and requires exceptional qualities of patience and attentiveness because once won, it is decisive definitively. Uh, and that's 238 to 239. I should have been saying, quote, oh, unquote. Yeah. There is a that's bunch of like synopsis going on. And mm -hmm. But that's that's from one of the prison notebooks, um, page 230, 239. I'm not sure which volume. It just oh, that's what that means. Mm -hmm. Prison notebooks. That makes so much sense now. I was thinking <laughs> page number. Gramsci <laughs> <laughs> okay. bases this transition from one form of politics to another historic... Oh. Gramsci bases this, quote, transition from one form of politics to another, end quote. Historically, it takes place in the West after 1870 and is identified with the, quote, colonial expansion of Europe. Anyway, sorry, I just, yeah. Gramsci saw the same shit we've been talking about. <laughs> and fucking these idiots. There's so many idiots. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's no excuse for not seeing this, like... <sighs> Gramsci right there. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's right there. It's right damn there. Um, <laughs> With the colonial expansion of Europe, the emergence of modern mass democracy, a complexification in the role and organization of the state, and an unprecedented elaboration in the structures and processes of civil he he hegemony. I, I don't, he hegemony. I hate it. Okay. If you say hegemony or hegemony, I think people understand what it's supposed well, to be hegemony. I don't know. I got it. I said hegemony like twice the last episode. It 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 throws you off. My thing is is that I speak very wrong often, so I just try to do better. <laughs> and this is one of those words that I'm just like English is stupid. <laughs> anyway, with uh what Gramsci is pointing to here is partly the diversification of social antagonisms, uh, the, dis, uh, the quote, dispersal of power, which occurs in societies where hege hegemony is not sustained exclusively through the enforced instrumentality of the state, but rather is grounded in the relations and institutions of civil society. In such societies, the voluntary associations, relations, and institutions of civil society schooling, the family, 
churches and religious life, cultural organizations, so-called private relations, gender, sexual and ethnic identities, etc., become in effect, quote, for the art of politics, the trenches, and the permanent fortifications of the front in the war of position. They render merely partial the element of movement which before used to be the whole of war i think that's a, <laughs> that's quite sorry that's a, a lot it is and and i mean again we'll go back to it you know um the the relations and institutions of civil society and this is why we're fighting this war of position right this changing cultures because the war of maneuver the russian revolution type is is per gramsci the old way to do it the last the last you know big crescendo of that um so we're fighting in effect uh you know in schools uh, in in the family and and it's you know institution of, of protecting hegemony in churches and religious life and cultural organizations. Um, so, well, and I know. mean, like a lot of this is addressed in uh, Engels. You can mm-hmm. see like where a lot of this is rooted in its original analysis. Yes. Is Engels is origin of the family, private property, and the state. Yes. Probably mighty class and uh, well, what's the other part of that title by Marx too, but um, money class and. Uh, the state. Money class. I don't know. Money classes. There's two something like that, that. or like three things like that, and I don't remember something like that. I don't remember either. But yeah. I, I've read it once upon a time. You know? Sure. I'm no Gramsci. Okay. It's there's actually two of them that are like blah blah and blah from Marx, and if you put them together, they're like a condensed capital. But I don't remember what the name. Right. Is. Oh, money capital and. Oh. That sounds something like that. God yeah. damn it. Okay, let's skip this part. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, uh, so it, no, but it always t- also touches on you know gender and 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 you know sexual and ethnic identities, and these are constants, right? Look how important gender and homophobia and religion and uh, you know is. Look at look at exactly where the right wing is fighting now. Well, and, and why they're look, fighting there. If you look in the conquest the colonial expansion in 1870 these were the institutions attacked by colonialism you know the the attack of uh schooling uh so like they destroyed all the books that maya had and stuff like that so people literally believe that nobody wrote and it's like you idiots like the inca wrote rope you know like Imagine how much rope was just burnt or repurposed for some other fucking stupid use by the Spanish. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, there's uh, you have the attack on uh, the family units, uh, which like in, in indigenous cultures, the nuclear family is no, it's very much. It takes a village like in Lakota culture. You usually send your kids off to the aunt or uncle, depending on which kid it is, you know, or the auntie. <laughs> which is like a combination of auntie and uncle. Um, <laughs> but like, uh, you know, it's just, it's very fascinating to see like the de- systematic destruction of our institutions and here it described as trenches because quite literally, I mean, when you think about how the indigenous struggle continues, it's entrenched in our identity as, you know, our nations and uh, upholding a counter hegemony uh, with our own, you know, uh, family systems, religions, etc. Like the fact that the Lakota still maintain our religious rights and stuff um, is very, very much 
um, part of why we still maintain so much political strength. You know, it's like any tribe that's had uh, some level of preservation of their culture has been able to maintain a significant more amount of power than say like uh, the smaller, more extinct for lack of a better term, uh, more genocided, whatever you want to say. It's hard to say politely, um, you know, tribes on the East or even on the West coast in California, where um, you go through Spanish, Mexican and American colonization. Yeah. You know, that's three different genocides with different <laughs> ideas on how to do genocide the best, you know, like, yeah. anyway, uh, so underlying all this is therefore a deeper labor of theoretical redefinition. Gramsci in effect is progressively transforming the limited definition of the state characteristic of some versions of Marxism as essentially reducible to the coercive instrument of ruling class stamped with an exclusive class character, which can only be transformed by being smashed quote unquote with a single blow. He comes gradually to emphasize not only the complexity for the formation of modern civil society, but also the parallel development and complexity of the formation of the modern state. The state is no longer conceived as simply an administrative and coercive apparatus and also, quote, educative and formative. It is the point from which hegemony have hegemony over society as a whole is ultimately exercised, though it is not the only place where hegemony is constructed. It is the point of condensation, not because all forms of coercive domination necessarily radiate outward from its apparatuses, but because in its contradictory structure, it condenses a variety of different relations and practices into definite quote system of rules quote. It is for the reason, this reason, the site of conforming that is bringing into line or quote, adapting the civilization and the morality of the broadest masses to the necessities of the continuous development of the economic apparatus of production. So the reproduction of good worker bees. Yeah. So basically, you know, the state is not a prison guard so much as it's an abusive parent that you only exist to use to. Well, I, you know, uh, I was even thinking like, uh, how schools are ran and designed mm -hmm. like prisons mm -hmm. um, a warden, you know, might be an apt description, yeah. you know, like uh, they're the, they set out some set of rules and then the guards, you know, or say in the church, the mm -hmm. cardinals, you know, the high priests, whatever you want to call them, you know, they then replicate to, the lower masses, what was set out to them, and those their followers, the obedient ones, replicate it in an ab continuing the abuse at home, you yeah. know, and then re continue on the patriarchal systems or whatever it is. When thinking about it in prisons, uh, the sort of white supremacist culture is um, enforced by the guards a lot, um, but it's ultimately replicated by the prisoners rather than the guards like at a certain point as long as you enable the white supremacists to bully everybody then you don't have to do it yourself anymore though they certainly will um, yeah. it's it's manipulative. i'm sure <laughs> it's manipulative and it's it's not only power 
in the sense that it beats you down its power in the sense that it controls your world and 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 must be what rears you well and like the transactionalization of every relationship from mm-hmm. you know uh, partnerships romantic partnerships to even um with your kids i mean like uh, the amount of people who believe in charging rent to their kids from their allowance is yeah. weird <laughs> It's very fascinating. I don't know. I've seen like taxes too. And it's like, I get what you're going for, but also like, yeah, I've, I've seen there's exceptions I'll make where like people are, or they don't have a lot of money and the kid is a teenager and like volunteers to pay that rent to help out. Oh, that's but, different. I was, but that's, this is more like demanding rent from a kid is yeah. Well, I mean, even then, like it's your kid shouldn't have to go to work. No, 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 and 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 again, usually in those those situations, the kid volunteers. The parents don't tend to want the the money, but they have to, you know, take it because because things are tight. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm just like child labor is a fucked up reality yeah. that shouldn't no, exist. Because mm-hmm. like a lot of libertarians, well, what if the kid volunteers and it's like it doesn't matter societally speaking, like that kid, shouldn't be happening. There, there should not be enough of a need for the kid to want that you should just pay their parents a living wage actually yeah exactly exactly um but and that i I think this is a should we end here or that's what yeah i was thinking time wise and and the thought because we ended at the end of the paragraph well maybe yeah it well and when do we read one more no i think no okay okay um so um Usually, usually we read more than three pages as much as we joke around about never reading much on, on Mark's Madness, but we read three pages. And so that's a good spot to stop. Yeah. And, you know, we're going to go back over some of this with, you know, uh, Prez, I guess, if if there was any questions. Yep. Um, I know I have some um, just because I'm afraid, you know, maybe we're you know misconstruing some stuff. But <laughs> I, I think we're I think we're on to it. I think. Yeah. I don't think we're wrong. <laughs> Just maybe a little tune up. I don't know. But yeah, so this has been Mark's Madness, where we read books. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a number of ways you guys can get a hold of us. Um, you can get a hold of us at uh, Mark's Madness Pod or at Chunkalutin1973 on Twitter. The same handles at Gmail, Mark's Madness Pod at gmail.com, Chunkalutin1973 at Gmail. We do have a Discord. The Mark's Madness one is open to the public. Uh, the Chunkaluta one is by invite or through Patreon. Um, yeah. And with that, uh, should money to plugs? Oh, uh, well, there's the Patreon, right? Um, yeah. I highly recommend supporting it because that money is going to help people get to Sundance. It's going to help build up the garden. It's going to help do a bunch of different things. Um, so the more support we get there, the better, uh, we're $125 over the money I need to live. So with like another $125, we can pay, uh, friends, uh, trans comrades rent, uh, every month. And then they can, you know, live without the pressures of fucking begging online every day. Um, I mean, it's just, it's hard to get a job in a reactionary country like theirs. Um, I don't know if they want me to talk about what country they're from. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, like, the, I don't know, like uh, they were at a therapy session and uh, the dude was being like 
super transphobic to them and i i I think they're like closeted when at those appointments right yeah and like was talking about like a trans prostitute had gotten stabbed or something like it's a fucked up story but i'm just like yeah that certainly sucks (laughs) but they'll be doing transcriptions for us and so you know um that's a big thing is uh we're trying to pay people to do transcriptions um at a two dollars a minute rate uh transcription minute so that's about four times higher than the industry standard um we think it's a fair rate that's what i get paid when i do it um so (laughs) i don't know like whatever that's to me good enough i don't know maybe somebody has a different opinion and i'm open to hearing it but uh you know, this is the stuff that it goes to paying for as well as uh, hosting fees. We're building a website right now to host these transcriptions for ease of access, uh, not only for Mark's Manus episodes, but Decolonized Buffalo. Uh, we'll be transcribing their episodes. Um, we'll also be launching a Chunkaluta YouTube um, to, uh, and so we want to pay editors and stuff um but uh and also camera people and or buy an actual camera that's good and not an iphone though an iphone is an okay substitute but then i need to pay the phone bill for an iphone so that fucking sucks Uh, (laughs) i don't know I, i hate this i hate capitalism um but yeah so there's always a bunch of shit that we're uh, doing uh, right now, we're trying to sell a buffalo hide. Um, still, it's twelve hundred dollars. It's a winter hide. Um, they usually sell for about sixteen to two thousand um, dollars because of the thickness of the coat. Um, this goes to funding again Sundance. It pays for porta potties for five days. Uh, we host a bunch of people. We feed everybody for those five days, and um, it's literally international um, summit of people. Like uh, we have Ainu people come, we have Sami people who show up, we have people from Germany, China, um, all over, just all over come, and uh, lots of famous folk from like the Red Power era. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, uh, it's a huge help. Uh, it's, it's greatly appreciated, um, and it directly benefits. Uh, the lives of uh, Lakota people in a way that um, is very beneficial to the movement. I'm sure you can catch how <laughs> there's a lot of investigation that can happen there. Um, there is the issue that, you know, the feds are very aware of who my uncle is and they probably have people there. So it's very much, uh, you know, be careful situation, but that's like, one of the big reasons we keep it going is that it's so instrumental that the government has literally flown strategic bombers over it before and fucking raided it with the ATF and shit at the same time and arrested my uh, uncle under the accusations of uh, having a bazooka, having bazookas and starting a militia. And none of that happened. They found a Buffalo rifle, you know, (laughs) that's it. Okay. Um, but yeah, uh, so another big thing is while we're there is, uh, I'll be recording his memoirs and, um, he, uh, we are going to be writing his, uh, autobiography. Well, his biography, um, um, as Chunkaluta collective or whatever. Um, so like, uh, 
I just think it's a really important to get elders um, histories known, but I think it's very relevant to people through the stories I talk about my uncle, uh, why we should want to hear uh, his life story and learn from it a bit because it's just very real and very um, informative from everything he's seen and been through. Of course, at 17, he was at Wounded Knee um, uh, you know, shooting at feds. That's fucking badass. But then he was also at Tiananmen Square with Jesse Jackson and my other uncle, Russell Means. So it's like, I don't know. That's interesting. He also did a sweat lodge with Axl Rose and performed some ceremony for fucking Iggy Azalea. So I'm just like, what a weird dude. <laughs> a weird guy. So, you know, if you want to learn more about that, you can also learn about that on the Patreon. And then also there is going to be a lot of Chunkaluta writing coming out in uh, the Unity Struggle Unity's newspaper the clarion which there's a patreon you can sign up to get a physical copy monthly uh or you can contact us and we can sell you a copy at a cheaper price i think i don't know how it works out i i mean yeah i don't know like i think we're gonna give them out to a patreon if we you know have the money to cover shipping internationally for a piece of paper i don't know how much that's gonna be it's a little suspect, but then we do have people in Canada and stuff that could mail out from there. I don't know. We'll figure out the logistics, but yeah. Anyway, that's, I think everything there's a lot, there's been a lot going on. Okay. Um, <laughs> so with that, uh, everyone, I mean, you know, get out there, right? This is an example, get out there and um, fight a, a war of position. Right. Don't don't try to make it a, a yeah. war of maneuver and don't wait for the big moment. Go out there and, and fight the war position, fight for each other, organize and and support these efforts that are already ongoing. Like if you just heard, I gave you like eight different mm-hmm. fronts that I'm working on alone. So mm-hmm. it's just like, come on. I mean, we're taking it. We're taking we're accepting writing, you know, email Mark's Madness or Chunkaluta. Uh, if you're interested in writing for the collective, um, you know. I, I don't know. Like we're 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 trying to try to fight that war position. That's right. Um, so with that, uh, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name's David. I am Shung Manitu. And we will talk to all of you next week. Bye. Hoksha. Oh, sure.